Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Well, recently, David Einhorn, who is well-respected uh, hedge fund manager, uh, frequently gets calls right, suggested that General Motors should divide its shares into two classes, one that would be for capital appreciation and the other which would be for its hefty dividend. His goal to unlock value in these shares. This raised a lot of questions for Nick Colas, who joins us right now. He's chief market strategist at Convergix uh, and wrote a fascinating piece about how this highlights some of the broken aspects of the public equity market. Nick. Please yeah, explain. that's exactly right. Because as I started thinking about Einhorn's proposal, I realized that it's really part of a continuum and that you've seen other kind of little chips away at the classical equity market structure over the past decade or so. So you look at Snap with its recent IPO not offering voting shares. You see dual classes of stock in a lot of the most successful tech companies, Google, Facebook, and so forth. And you begin to realize that there's something going on much bigger than just GM, Einhorn, and one company and a debate about cyclical companies and valuations. Right. And you point to also initial public offerings and how much uh, the total volume of IPOs in any given year has gone down dramatically over the past few decades. And this is also an issue that Jay Clayton, who's been nominated to be SEC chair, uh, raised in front of Congress when he testified, saying that this is one area that he wants to address. Why do you think that there is a sort of structural flaw that is increasingly prevalent in public equity markets. Yeah, this is the single most important question nobody really talks about very much because the key issue is that public equity shareholders must have access to the very best companies that a society can create. The reason is that if they don't have access to that, they're just stuck with the losing companies because the nature of disruption is such that the new companies started out in California go on to grow and really impinge on the growth of other companies that are publicly held currently. So you have to be able to buy the new ones to basically benefit from society's innovation. If you don't have access to them, then over time, investors will simply take their money and go away because they don't want to own just the losers. They want to own the winners as well. Right. Matt Levine, a Bloomberg View columnist here, and I were talking about this extensively last week, and we were talking about you know how the public equity markets have been part of the American dream of, you know, sharing in dynamism and getting uh, a part of the fastest growing companies. But, you know, I would argue, couldn't you say that public equity markets haven't gotten worse, but that private debt markets have just gotten so much better, private debt and equity. And, you know, you have this incredible groundswell in the amount of debt uh, that has been uh, issued. You have cheaper rates, thanks to the Fed, and Frank's, thanks to also a changing dynamic in demographics. Um, couldn't investors just participate through the debt markets? Um, they could to a degree, but ultimately, the way you get upside in an investment is owning the equity piece of the balance sheet, because that's where all the residual cash flows go. I think you raised the right points, though, and that VC has gotten a lot bigger, a lot deeper, and a lot better. And there's a lot of really smart investors out there in VC land uh, that just do venture capital investment. Additionally, we're going through this big macro stage in the economy where there's a lot of disruption. Disruption takes a long time to invest in and see the benefits 
benefits of that. And I think one other reason why there's not a lot of IPOs is venture capital is reluctant to give voting control or even voting input to public equity investors for projects that might be still five or 10 years down the road. And so they keep them private instead of taking them public. Yeah. And just to give some numbers behind that, as you highlighted in your recent report, uh, in the late 1990s, there were often 30 to 80 IPOs per month. Now that number is more like 10 to 20 time, uh, twenty IPOs per month. So Nick, you raise a good, co- uh, good point with voting rights. Do you think that we're going to see more companies stripping away voting rights in their IPOs and frankly, stock buyers being okay with that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's definitely the way of the future because ultimately the goal is to get these companies out into the public domain, let investors invest if they want or if they don't, then they don't have to. Um, but whatever it takes to connect the public equity investor to this tremendous growth engine that's going on in, in Silicon Valley and in Sand Hill Road and venture capital around the world, that's the most critical thing that can happen for equity markets in the next five to 10 years. How much of mom and pop investors lost out by not being able to participate in these early stages of these uh, Silicon Valley companies? Well, let's uh, think about Uber, for example. Still private, worth by any estimate, 60 to $70 billion. It would have been great if public equity investors could have bought that company when it was 20 or $25 billion. Still a very viable market cap for a public company, something they could have done and benefited from that. So that's just one example. I'm sure there's many others. Yeah, but couldn't somebody argue that there also were a lot of flops that managed to go bankrupt and squander a lot of money that... Uh, public equity investors were saved from. Yeah, there's sort of two, two ancillary points to that. The first is that you still need all the right disclosures, financial disclosures, risk disclosures, good investment banking due diligence, the whole nine yards on that. But on top of that, you do ultimately have to take some risk in order to make a return. And that includes potentially buying some flops along the way. And that's okay as long as you're invested in a broadly diversified portfolio. Um, how much do the sort of regulatory burdens that Jay Clayton highlighted as being onerous for a lot of companies. How much does that factor into uh, corporations' decision to or not to uh, have an IPO? You know, ultimately, there is definitely some issue with all the regulations, Sarbanes-Oxley and disclosures and what happens if you get it wrong and having corporate officers sign off on on, on statements, all of which are kind of post-crisis developments. But the overwhelming issue seems to be that venture capital is really reluctant to let go of their babies. They think they have really figured out the next wave of disruption, and they don't want to have a lot of outside investors having to vote on who the new CEO is or if this company is going to emerge earlier or later. They want to maintain that control because they feel they understand the landscape better. So worst case scenario, if this trend continues of uh, only the losers remaining in the public equity market, what do you think will happen? You know, ultimately, in the worst case scenario, people start to invest less. So, for example, we all know Amazon has really, you know, killed it and driven a lot of bricks and mortar companies uh, down the tubes. What if Amazon had never gone public? We wouldn't have access to that company. It wouldn't have grown as it has. And more importantly, we'd only be stuck owning the department stores, which are now really struggling against the Amazon threat. So it's super critical to have the winners in the market as well as the losers. So... You know, it's interesting to me. I find that often when markets are uh, entering a kind of boring state or one that is neither uh, one of incredible upside or downside is a time when people get deeply philosophical about the meaning of of these markets. I mean, it's part of the reason why we're, we're seeing some of these existential questions emerge because uh, the Fed is kind of managing things well and everything is just kind of chugging along and nobody can really make a, a much more of a dramatic statement than that. I think there's a piece of it, but I think we're also, I think there's a lot of people, I'm sure everybody in this building, 
been deeply intrigued by artificial intelligence, autonomous driving, new technologies generally. And I think everybody understands it's important that investors have access to those technologies as they go through development and become public companies. Because otherwise, you could have a situation where venture capital continues to own all the disruption, and what gets disrupted is still in the public markets. And you don't want to see that happen because capital will stop circulating as well as it has before. Nick, you used to work in the auto industry, right? Yep. So have you talked with anyone about uh, David Idahorn's proposal? Yeah, I spent 10 years covering the autos uh, at the old First Boston, now Credit Suisse, and I have been in contact with several uh, former CEOs, CFOs, treasurers. To a person, they don't like the idea very much, but I will tell you that they also understand the frustration because they've all lived through multiple cycles of this group, never outperforming from cycle trough to cycle trough. Several lived through the, the bankruptcies during the financial crisis, and they get that there's a problem. They're just reluctant to try to fix it aggressively at this point in the cycle. Well, how could they fix it? You know, Einhorn's proposal is an intriguing one because at least it addresses the issue of who, you know, maintaining a shareholder base that is explicitly loyal to your financial structure. So if you're a dividend investor, you buy the dividend stock. If you just want the buybacks, you buy the buyback stock. So it's an attempt at answering that question, but I think it's not the final word. Uh, just to sort of uh, dovetail into the Fed, I mean, do you think that a Fed, uh, a few more Fed rate hikes or a possible announcement of the unwinding of its $4.5 trillion balance sheet uh, will upend stocks in any way or that, you know, this will become a, a major disruption that is not on the radar right now? Yeah. In the context of the market that we see right now and the economy that we see right now, the answer is no. I think everybody has a fairly good feeling that we're going to grow one and a half to two, two and a half percent this year in terms of GDP, that inflation is going to get back to two percent and kind of stay there, and the Fed's going to raise twice more, and that's the playbook everybody's using. And so as long as we sort of follow that playbook and everything else, the two rate increases is probably fine. The unwinding of the balance sheet's a more complex issue, and it's much about how the Fed chooses to do that and at what pace and how they give guidance about it. And I doubt they'll do that until the back half of the year. So we have a few more months of just thinking about June as the next rate increase, and then I think they'll start talking about not just the pace of the unwind, but the mechanics of the unwind. What do you make between the divergence between soft economic data and hard <laughs> economic data? Boy, you know, it's 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 like a, a viral cat video. You know, it's it's sometimes it's it, not that exciting, actually. <laughs> it's one of those themes that just feels like it exploded out of nowhere and it'll be gone again in two days. I think it's an important notion, but I think it speaks to your point that people don't have much else to talk about at the moment, and, and as a result, trying to parse the data even more finely than before. The bottom line is: Are we growing or not growing? The answer is yes, we're growing. Are we overheating? No, we're not overheating. Uh, I love that, by the way. I love the idea of the difference between soft and hard data being a viral cat video. Um, anything that we should be talking about real quick that we aren't? No, that's definitely, this to me was like the most important topic that I could come up with was what, what is actually, what is a vote of, what is a share supposed to do, not only for the investor, but for society as a whole? Honestly, a super important topic and a very, very good report that you did. Nicholas, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Nick Colas is Chief Market Strategist at Convergix, talking about why public equity markets are deeply flawed right now and how this could potentially uh, really badly affect the future of where people put their money and how much they invest. Thanks so much, Nick.
Well, I want to turn uh, the attention to marijuana, actually. Um, not the actual plant, but real estate that is involved with the cannabis industry. And here uh, to speak about that is is Dawn Sandoval. She's Chief Operating Officer of Calix Development Incorporated, uh, which is based in New York City. And Dawn, I was reading about your background. You were on Wall Street for a long time. You are a graduate of Wharton. Uh, How did you find yourself in the cannabis industry? Well, Lisa, The cannabis industry and my interest there really began about seven years ago uh, as developments began in Colorado and were continuing to develop in California. And it was quite clear to me that the efficacy of the plant and all the various uses that have really just garnered increased exposure as research has increasingly better research has come online was a trend, in my opinion, that was going to continue. And so As I started to look at various verticals in the cannabis space, it was quite clear to me that real estate was a sector that was both scalable and somewhat protective in the sense that you have bricks and mortar assets, uh, as well as an opportunity for diversification across the country that could provide a strong buffer should the cannabis experiment across the country be repealed or simply rolled back in a particular jurisdiction. Well, the cannabis experiment, I like that way of describing it. Can that, uh, can you dovetail that into present-day dynamics and sort of the political rhetoric that we hear uh, from Jeff Sessions about potentially cracking down on marijuana and re- rebuffing attempts to make it legal? I mean, has this resulted in a plateauing of opportunities uh, for your business and for cannabis in general in the U.S.? I would say to date... Uh, The comments out of Jeff Sessions, as well as Sean Spicer on behalf of the administration, uh, is really saber-rattling and certainly a far cry from any legislative action. And we know, frankly, behind closed doors that uh, Jeff has, has made some of his lieutenants in the Republican Party somewhat more comfortable that there'll be no immediate action in terms of greater federal enforcement as it results as it relates to recreational cannabis. So in terms of the opportunity set for Calix and the cannabis industry in general, I would say the opportunity set is is unimpacted at this stage. How big is the cannabis real estate market? Well, it's a difficult question because it's such a fractured industry. And as you move from state to state, there are local and regional jurisdictions that have very, very high degree of differentiation between zoning laws and licensing practices, such that the actual building count on a per state basis, depending on how you want to divvy up those uh, zoning requirements, uh, can vary quite substantially. Well, how big is Calix? Calix is currently nine properties. We manage over 650,000 square feet. Our buildings are spread across four states, primarily out west, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, and Arizona, and we currently house 21 tenants. So what's the difference between a cannabis-related building and a regular building? So a cannabis building is subject to very strict guidelines with respect to zoning and siting, as well as it has very specific infrastructure requirements, power, water, lighting. Uh, And it is exactly these types of unique characteristics, both from a regulatory perspective and a facilities perspective, that create what we like to call at Calix 
a new vertical within the commercial real estate space. Has it been harder for you to drum up interest with investors just because of uh, some of Jeff Sessions' comments and Sean Spicer's comments, even if in backroom conversations they're sort of poo-pooing any potential imminent uh, repeal of some of the local uh, legalization of marijuana? I think with certainty, the new administration and the comments that we have had out of it, uh, as well as the comments from Jeff Sessions in particular, have given investors pause to a certain extent. Um, But again, it is clear that the administration, whether it's tax reform, immigration or health care, has much larger issues uh, it intends to deal with before, I believe, getting to cannabis. Well, I guess we'll see, right? Um, What about up north? Do you look at Canada at all? Uh, We do watch what's going on in the Canadian markets, for sure. We don't own any property there, but uh, it's certainly tremendous growth. And the capital markets there uh, have really experienced some exponential uh, growth with respect to cannabis companies of late. Well, yeah. And in the past couple of weeks, didn't... um wasn't there some legislation that was signed that would sort of expand the legalization of marijuana in Canada and it led to some kind of complete boom in shares tied to uh, that industry, right? There is expected uh, legislation later this month to be brought to the floor whereby uh, continued expansion of marijuana in Canada on a legalized basis uh, could have a much more developed framework uh, as early as July of next year. So what's the biggest opportunity for you going forward in the next year? So the biggest opportunity for Calix is to continue to build its real estate platform. We're looking quite aggressively at new opportunities uh, more toward the East Coast. We're looking at acquisitions in Florida, Maryland, Massachusetts to be to be clear. Real quick, uh, what are your conversations like with your colleagues, your former colleagues on Wall Street? It's interesting. Everyone wants to know if the green rush is for real. And what I say is uh, it's a nascent industry, ripe with risk, but a lot of opportunity if you're willing to spend the time and do the work. I'm sure you have a lot of fascinating conversations. Thank you so much uh, for keeping us up to date on what's going on in the cannabis real estate industry. Don Sandoval, Chief, uh, Chief Operating Officer. I can't speak today. It's Friday. Chief Operating Officer at Calix Development Incorporated in New York City, talking about all the opportunities for cannabis-related properties. I want to turn to energy uh, and not just the production of energy, uh, but using waste from energy production to create more energy. I want to bring in Stephen Jones, president and chief executive officer of Covanta Holding Corporation, which is based in New Jersey. Uh, Stephen, I want to start first with the business model here. What is waste to energy? Yeah. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me on for, for starters. Uh, waste to energy is basically taking uh, waste um, from either people's homes or uh, special waste from corporations uh, and putting through a combustion process in order to reclaim or capture the uh, the BTUs that are that are still contained in that waste and and based on that recapturing or combustion to produce uh, energy and you can produce steam um, and or power um, from the from the steam. So is this a no-waste process, or is this just sort of uh, trying to strip out anything that's left over in a less efficient uh, energy production process uh, and using it again? 
Yeah, so it's it's the latter. So effectively, what you want to do, and, and we're certainly in favor of this, is go through the recycling process. And after the recycling process, there's still waste that's left over. And it has BTU value to it. And so rather than uh, putting it in the Earth's surface or putting it into a landfill, uh, the alternative is to put it through a combustion process and, and reclaim that energy. Can you just give me a visual here? I mean, do you go to landfills and just uh, pick up big portions of garbage and feed it through a machine. I feel like it's like a Dr. Seuss uh, <laughs> book where you sort of put it in a machine and it comes out in a box and you yeah. have some more energy. Yeah, we actually we actually run 42 uh, energy from waste facilities uh, around the U.S. and, and also uh, internationally. So we have a big project we're building in, in downtown Dublin right now. Uh, so these facilities actually uh, are in and around population centers, so they're critical infrastructure to population centers. And actually, um, we don't pick up waste. Uh, there's Companies out there that that you know that go and pick the waste up from the curb from from your house, uh, and then their alternatives are either take it to a landfill to uh, to dump it or tip it, uh, or take it to one of our facilities. And again, um, when they take it to a landfill, uh, it decomposes over about a 50-year period and produces methane. And methane's um, about 80 times worse than, than CO2 as a greenhouse gas. So um, there's a lot of people, and particularly a lot of companies in the U.S., who don't really want to take their waste to landfills any longer and would rather have it go through what's a more sustainable process, which is an energy from waste plant. So how many waste-to-energy facilities does Covanta have? So we own or operate 42, so we're the largest in the world. Our next closest competitor is about uh, half the size of us. Uh, and uh, generally, we uh, we process about 20 million tons a year of waste, and that's about five percent of the waste in the U.S. The U.S. still has a lot of landfill that that we that that are utilized for waste disposal. It's enough. Uh, we produce enough electricity to power one million homes. And the other interesting thing is that we also reclaim metal from the waste. There's an enormous amount of metal that goes through the, the through the waste stream, and so we rec- reclaim or recycle approximately 500,000 tons of metal annually, and that's enough to build five Golden Gate Bridges a year, which a lot of people find uh, find interesting. I There's a lot say, of metal in there. I, I'm just sitting here, sitting here trying to think about the economics of this, how this works, mm-hmm. because I would guess that it's fairly expensive to build the equipment to sift through mountains and mountains, mountains of garbage. Yeah, so again, the waste comes to us just like it would, so we don't, it either... Yeah, but even processing it. Yes, uh, so we get paid for the waste um, from from an economic standpoint. If you think about it, we get paid for the waste that we take in, um, just like we just like a landfill gets paid for that. Uh, but then we're able to put it through the combustion process and produce energy, and then we get paid for the energy and also for the metals that we recycle. So um, it, it's a system that's got a number of inputs and outputs, and we get paid for all those. It's very attractive underlying economics. Uh, we have high adjusted EBITDA margins, greater than 25%, and our free cash flow conversions in about the 40% range. So uh, these uh, these plants uh, have a high degree of free cash flow conversion. Do you deal a lot with NIMBY, with people not wanting to have these, uh, not in my backyard, not not wanting your plants near them? Yeah, it's interesting. In the U.S., there's there's a lot of NIMBY. I would tell you uh, new plant uh, new plant. Uh, developments in the U.S. are uh, few and far between um, because the U.S. has a lot of landfills, and so uh, that t- tends to be the, uh, the the route that waste goes. But if you go uh, to uh, any other uh, international uh, jurisdiction, so if you think about the EU, 
Um, Ireland, for example, where we're building a big plant, even a lot of places in Asia, there's a lot more acceptance of energy from waste. I think uh, the citizens there have, uh, and the governments there have become um, more uh, inclined to not put their waste in a landfill and have the greenhouse gas impact occur. They'd rather have it go to an energy from waste plant. And and in the, in the energy from waste plant, there's a controlled combustion process. So if you think about the capital we spend on these plants, around 40% of the capital goes into the air pollution control systems on the back end. So it's a much more controlled process rather than a landfill where the where the waste decomposes over you know a roughly 50-year period. This is so fascinating to me, Stephen Jones, uh, President and Chief Executive Officer of Covanta Holding Corporation. Uh, Thank you so much. One thing that this just uh, raises in my mind is the U.S. has so much more land and empty land than a place like the the European Union, where there needs to be more of a premium put on consolidating space and uh, making sure that it is all used efficiently. Uh, Fascinating topic. Energy, waste to energy. I want to turn to a story that's getting a lot of attention today by Bloomberg's Laura Keller, a financial news reporter here uh, at Bloomberg. And it's about how traders are shifting the way they try to communicate out of the eyes of their employers. Uh, Laura joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Laura, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, what you're finding about how traders are communicating with each other? Yeah, so Lisa, we talked with uh, I think probably a half do- uh, two dozen different people about this and more over the years, and really just looking at why they're turning to these things. So it's these it's, things being WhatsApp and other yes. types of encrypted uh, sort of uh, chat vehicles. Exactly. And iMessage, Apple's iMessage counts as well because that does have some encryption as well. Um, So essentially using these different communication devices, these text-based messaging services to talk about work, to talk about things they don't want anyone to see. So we kind of found a range. You know, it's some things just sort of jokes, things that you would share, you know, like email chains used to be. Other things are a little bit more, you know, maybe it's a work thing that's happening that you don't really want anyone to know about, complaining about work. But it also rises to this level of legally dubious information, which is, you know, talking about client positions. Um, And we also even, you know, have some examples, too, of actual bribery and securities fraud being talked about um, on these different apps. Okay, so just to be clear, the reason, one reason why this is so front and center for so many people is that just this week, a former Jeffries banker was fined in the UK for sharing confidential data on WhatsApp. Um, This sort of brings to fore the issue, but banks are trying to crack down on this. I mean, this has been going on for a while. Uh, Banks have certainly cracked down on mobile phone usage and texting. Um, What are they doing to, to combat this? Right. So banks, as you say, you know, each and every time there's a new place that people are going offline to talk, they've it's like cat and mouse. They always find a way. Emails used to be something that we didn't have ingested into these big bank compliance forms. And now we do. So the banks are trying. I mean, I think they know that this is happening, but a lot of them have these bans on text messages, period. You know, you can't bring your, your cell phone to the trading floor. You're not supposed to be conducting work. There's also um, different agreements that you sign when you're employed with the bank saying, yes, I attest that I will not conduct any business on any form of communication that you don't already monitor. You know, I, I'm, you know what I'm struck by as, as, I, as I read your article and as I, I hear you talk about it? 
why are people doing this? I mean, it, traders could just meet in person, right? I mean, yes, this is an encryption method, and so people could go to this. But I mean, it, it comes down to why are why are traders still trying to do this if they know it's illegal? And it, their use of these uh, encrypted apps just sort of highlights their knowledge of the fact that they're illegal. So I mean, do people talk about that? I mean, people could just be meeting in person. Does this just highlight how frequent it is that this type of activity goes on? Right. So people do meet in person. They do talk about these things then. Or they pick up the phone and they talk about it there. Usually they prefer cell phones, obviously, rather than a line at work. And they can but, use their personal cell phones, which would go out of the range of their uh, banks. Right. But those things can still be subpoenaed. So if there is ever any question, that could actually be under the purview of some kind of prosecutor. If you have a WhatsApp or a signal that deletes and nobody ever is able to subpoena those records – that's better. And I think you're seeing a lot of people in the political space, too, using Confide, using Signal, because they don't want to ever be monitored under any circumstance, even if they're not saying anything that would be a problematic. But is this type of encrypted app preferable even to an in-person meeting? I don't think it's preferable. I think it's when more of a convenience standard. So if you are in your same morning sales meeting at the bank floor, you can't really pick up the phone because you're literally in that meeting. You can't go meet someone because you're at work. But if you have something to say to someone about work, um, we've, we have some examples in here about people talking about you know, the trading desk buys and sells that's happening in text form in these sales meetings when it should probably be happening on, you know, Bloomberg IB, on message, whatever it is. You know, I have to wonder how often people use these apps more for conversations that might be a little bit racier than compliance would like, uh, less so for the illegal issues and more for, uh, say, you know, cracks about... I don't know, pick your not safe for work topic. Um, but, you know, it, right. I, I imagine it's more that than it is the other. And Am I exactly. right? Exactly. And I don't want to overstress that there are these sort of, you know, dubious things happening all the time. But we certainly found those examples. But you're right. It is a lot of things where I would rather not have my boss look at this. You know, it's a complaint about work. It's a complaint about your boss. Or maybe it's also something, you know, we don't, I mean, I want to swear on my, my text. We yeah. have so many complaints of banks, um, compliance officers being so, stringent on that that you actually get flagged right away if you use any kind of swear word or tone tone right. is important so whatsapp is a is a swearing platform laura keller thank you so much for joining us laura keller is a financial reporter here at bloomberg news thanks for listening to the bloomberg pnl podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at itunes soundcloud or whatever podcast platform you prefer I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.